welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. Sarah. Hey, Laura. So, Sarah, we're doing something a little different this week. Yes, we are. So, we are doing the Faith Hedgepeth case at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And we are going on Tales of an Educated Debutante with Adrian Wood to talk about the case. Adrian is wonderful. So, she has a Facebook Live and it's called Tales of an Educated Debutante. And she is hilarious. She is real. She is fun. She is smart. I just absolutely love Adrian. She is the real deal. She covers it all. And this is a hometown case to Adrian, it's North a- Carolina case. So we're going to go on Adrian's show Thursday at eight. Yes, that's right. It's a Facebook Live and we will post a link to it so you guys can join us that night and have some fun with a, an a- educated debutante. So what have we got this week? Well, we are leaving the Ivy League and we're actually going to what many people consider a public Ivy, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Born September 26, 1992, Faith Hedgepeth was a gorgeous, vivacious 19-year-old with everything to look forward to. Faith was part of the Haliwa Saponi tribe. She got into University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill on a Gates scholarship. And Faith really loved kids. She loved medicine. So she had aspirations of studying medicine and then taking that knowledge back to her community and really helping an underserved population. And actually, Sarah, Faith would have been the first person in her family to graduate from college. So this was a real dream for her to attend and graduate from UNC Chapel Hill. And her getting in there and getting this scholarship was really an amazing what a accomplishment coup for exactly. this family. Absolutely. So Faith was gregarious and popular and like many of us in college, boy crazy. She had lots of male attention and so many ways, Sarah, I really actually related a lot to this. I mean, she was just a typical 19-year-old college student, having fun, just doing what most of us did in college. And this is pretty interesting, actually. She was pledging the Alpha Pi Omega sorority, which this is new to me. It was founded in 1994, and it is the first indigenous sorority. That's really interesting. And there are now 20 chapters. Wow. So this was pretty interesting, and so she was pledging the sorority. She was really active at UNC. And so the night of September 7th, 2012, Faith was staying with her best friend, Karina Rosario. 
Rosario was living in off-campus housing, basically, in Chapel Hill. So the two girls went out dancing at a nightclub called The Thrill. It's really using the term nightclub for The Thrill. I looked it up. It's still around on Facebook. I mean, it's really kind of like a Vegas night, dollar tequila shots, kind of college bar hangout. More way. of a bar than an, I think, a nightclub. Is, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so the two girls left Thrill that night at 2.38 a.m. And we know the exact time Faith leaves because you can see Faith leaving on video footage from the club. Faith and Karina went back to Karina's house. And allegedly, Karina's not feeling well, and Faith texts Karina's, I don't know if you'd call him a boyfriend or a male friend, this guy, Brandon Edwards. What does the text say? It says, hey, B, can you come over here, please? Karina needs you more. Aha. You know, please let her know you care. As we'll get into later, I have a hard time speculating on these texts. I think a lot of these were just kind of texts. Young people were sending back and forth, uh, night out partying, there was drinking involved. So looking at them now and trying to see more into them, I think, is kind of a reach. But we do know that they get home, Karina says she's feeling sick, and then we know that around 4.25 a.m., Karina leaves the apartment again with another male friend, and she leaves the door unlocked, Sarah. And we really don't know if this is carelessness or intentional on Karina's part. But feeling she had a bit too much to drink that night. Yeah, I don't think it was intentional at all. And I mean, I think a lot of people have looked into this and thought this was so crazy that she went out at four in the morning. I've gone out at four in the morning when I was that age. I don't think it's that crazy or unusual when you're 19 or 20 years old. Even if she had been feeling sick, I think that she may have been feeling sick by drinking, felt a little better. I mean, this is kind of how things go in college. Absolutely. So Karina returns the next morning. She's actually looking for a ride home and trying to reach Faith and she can't reach her. So she calls another friend, Marisol, and gets home around 11 a.m. the next morning. And she finds the badly beaten body of Faith laying off the side of her bed. This is tragic, Sarah. The scene is beyond terrible. Faith is naked from the waist down. Her shirt has been pulled up over her face, and it's pretty clear that there's been a sexual assault. And Karina's 911 call, we'll we'll play it for our listeners right now. There's been a lot of speculation about this 911 call. We're going to play you part of it right now. Dara 911, where is your emergency? I, um, I just walked into my apartment and my friend is like, he's unconscious. And is unconscious? He's unconscious. I just walked in the apartment and there looks like there's blood okay, everywhere. Listen to, okay, listen to me. Listen to me. Somebody's already yeah. sending me ambulance. Okay? I need to get some information from you and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help. I'm going to tell you how to help her, okay? Okay. Okay. How, how old is your, how old is she? He's 19. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't okay. want to touch her, but... Listen to me. Is, is she breathing? I don't know. You need to check and see. Is she breathing? Hey, I don't think so. So really, Laura, people covering this case, and this is a case that went cold for... Nine years. Nine years, almost to the date. And people covering this case tore this 911 call apart. 
And objectively, I just, I think it sounds very real. I just think it sounds like a young girl, young woman freaking out, finding her best friend dead. Of course, we have the benefit of 2020 now because the case has been solved. But Faith's relationship with Karina would become a real focus for this case. So let's talk about the scene a bit. So Sarah, at the scene, there's a rum bottle, which came from within the house that has blood on it, and it appears to be the murder weapon. And then there's something very bizarre found, and this is found right next to the body, but doesn't have blood on it. Now, this has been the object of so much speculation, and that is this note that's found basically on a fast food bag. And it's just kind of a note hastily written on a fast food bag. And what does it say, Sarah? It says, The wording in order goes, I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous. And in thinking about that note and looking at that note, and we'll post a picture of the note, my take on it was that it was meant to read, I'm not jealous, and then stupid bitch was kind of added to it. Right. And so the order of it is different than that, but that's the thing. And people, this note was... Just people speculated wildly about this note. And and what's interesting about this note, forensically, this note is found very close to Faith's body. The note is found on the bed from which, you know, Faith's body is sort of half on, half off of the bed. The note is found on the bed. It is pristine. There's no blood spatter on this. There's nothing on this note that has, it does not have any blood on it. But the pen that was used to write the note is the same DNA that is found on face body. So, so much speculation goes into this note. People look at this as this is a huge clue. As in all cases, the police do a victimology. They're going to look at the people closest to faith. And in this case, Sarah, we have a lot of young people with a lot of texts and drinking and all kinds of things going on. A lot of boyfriends and... Yeah, a lot of boyfriends, a lot of guy friends, guys kind of in and out of the picture, none of which is an unusual situation for a 19-year-old, in my opinion. It's true. But as in most investigations, Laura, what you have is you've got the victim and then you have these really concentric circles that are drawn around and out from the victim. And those closest to the victim come under scrutiny. So among the people who are just dragged through the mud, were Faith's boyfriends, she'd won at home, she'd won at college, Karina Rosario and Eric Jones, which was one of sort of Rosario's boyfriends. Or ex-boyfriends. Ex-boyfriends, ex-boyfriend. exactly. Who had been abusive. Who had she had a restraining order a restraining against him. Who had made threats to Karina and to Faith. So he actually looked like a pretty good suspect. That's a, right. A person of interest to the police. And he lived in the complex, new faith, so really kind of fit the picture. However, as we mentioned, the police did get DNA and Eric's DNA did not fit. The police wind up looking at over 1,800 people in this investigation. That's an extraordinary amount of people. An extraordinary amount of people. And testing and testing and testing DNA. And with all of the speculation, with all of the people around faith they were unable to get a match laura and i have talked about this what was interesting about this case is we got interested in this case i think last summer basically and then as we're looking into this case this case is solved by dna 
back in September, I think it was September 17th, that they actually made a DNA match. So we're going to table that, leave you guys in massive amounts of suspense. (laughs) But what this case has done for us, this Hedgepeth case has done for Laura and I, is the amount of conjecture that has gone into this case, the amount of And believe me, there's been some excellent coverage on this case, and it got an extraordinary amount of attention, which I think is great for a cold case. It was really kept alive and kept alive, which I think is really good. But there's also been so, like I said, so much conjecture. And like as an investigator, you have to bend your mind with the evidence, but you can only bend the evidence so far to fit a theory. But the really weird thing to me about this Hedgepeth case is that there are are these red herrings. There are suspects that look like suspects. I mean, your point about Eric Jones is that he did make some threatening statements about Hedgepeth. Karina Rosario did have a restraining order against him. Absolutely. And, you know, a year after the murder took place, the FBI came in and did a criminal profile of the murderer, and it looked like they were profiling Eric. He fit this profile very, very well. And I think this is kind of a cautionary tale to show us that these are tools that are used. I think what really comes to mind to me is if it wasn't for DNA, Eric Jones would maybe imprison today. Right. I know it reminds me, though, too, so much of a case that we've covered, the Jane Britton case. Absolutely. And for those who don't know, Jane Britton was a Harvard graduate student who was murdered, and her case was cold for 50 years. For 50 50 years. 50 years. And so much speculation went around who murdered her, and and people thought it was a professor, and she was an anthropology student, and there were signs that perhaps Somebody had left clues that had to do with her field of study. Like, I'm sure her body was found with red ochre on it, if you've listened to our episode on that. All of that turned to naught because none of that had to do with the case. So I think that that was also a cautionary tale of speculation and not really knowing the facts. The 911 call has been ripped to shreds. People have really been dragged through the mud. And I think it is one of those cases where you just have to be careful. And I think it's like Eric Jones was dragged through the mud. Karina Rosario was dragged through the mud. For nine years, I think that I will definitely think twice before I make wild speculations about somebody's guilt without any type of evidence. And this case did receive a great deal of attention. And Sarah and I talked about it the other day, but Universities are generally very safe places for young people. I did a little research into that, and the main causes of death for young people at universities are accidents and drinking-related deaths, things like that. Including hazing. Hazing. Homicide is at the absolute bottom after cancer. This is like when we send our kids away to school, we really expect them. The homicide rates at universities are much lower than the communities that surround them. They're very safe places. They're like, it's like 0.53 yes. of the rate or something right. like that. It's incredibly low. So when this does occur, obviously we cover this in the podcast, it's a very, very big deal. And Faith's case garnered a huge amount of attention. But what we really want to bring up is faith was indigenous, and this really brings up the issue 
that indigenous women are actually twice as likely to experience violent crime than the rest of the population. Yes, and I think part of the reason why Faith's case garnered so much attention was that she was a UNC Chapel Hill student. Absolutely. She was also very beautiful, and I hate to say it, but that's what the media gravitates to. And I think what we want to point out is that had the same a crime occurred in her community, we wouldn't be talking about it today. That's right. We probably wouldn't even know it. We wouldn't know her name. Yeah. And uh, so I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that and what's being done to make some changes and why that is. And what I didn't know, Sarah, is that some of these tribes are not recognized in federal databases. So a lot of these cases are not even reported. Wow. So if they're not even reported, how are they going to be solved? And interestingly enough, the Department of the Interior, Deborah Halan from New Mexico, who is indigenous from the Laguna Pueblo tribe, has created the Missing and Murdered Unit of Indian Affairs part of the government to really pressure the federal government to make sure that there's an awareness. Absolutely. Can you imagine being the parents of this young person or a relative and just it not being recognized? Their death is not really given any coverage at all. Absolutely. And I'm going to share an article on our Facebook page with some of the many cases of other women that are unsolved. Yeah, that's so we can bring awareness to that. Absolutely. Because I think Faith's case really, it was so important to Faith to excel in college and to bring the skills she learned back to her community. Absolutely. That was very important to her. And so I feel it's very important to highlight what is going on in the indigenous community for women and the the issues facing them. Faith was murdered in 2012. Uh, About four years later, September 2016, authorities submitted the DNA that was found at the crime scene to a company called Parabon. So Parabon is a company that does DNA phenotyping, can make certain physical predictions about somebody, which is pretty extraordinary. They can tell what an individual looks like from their DNA. So in the case of Faith Hedgepeth's suspect, the DNA collected made clear the following. The DNA did not belong to a Caucasian person or a person of African descent. It was a person with dark olive skin of Latino origin. This technology, which I think is incredible, actually helps to eliminate suspects. And in this case, it eliminated suspects that were either black or white in the Hedgepeth case. Unbelievable. And the the most amazing thing is that a physical composite can be rendered from that DNA. So DNA can actually predict certain physical facial features. And so this is not only useful, Laura, for DNA found at crime scenes, but also for identifying Jane Doe's. It's it's incredible stuff. We'll post some, they're called Parabon snapshots, and we'll post them on our Facebook page for what the DNA predicted the person would look like and the actual photograph. It's incredible. Even in this case, this eliminates so many of the suspects just by the fact that they are are African-American or they're Caucasian. Exactly. So it, it is a very useful tool. I think even though this composite help from Parabon helped to eliminate certain people as suspects, and likewise, like they hadn't had any DNA matches essentially cut to 
like we said from the very beginning, we had started looking at the Faith Hedgepath case as a cold case this summer. Then around September 16th, September 17th, it was widely reported that someone had been arrested in connection with Faith's murder. There had been a DNA hit. And the guy's name is Miguel Enrique Oliveras. I'm just going to call him Oliveras, okay, for the sake of simplicity. Oliveras got pulled over for a DUI in Durham. He lives in Durham. He's originally from Guatemala. He got pulled over for a DUI, and they, I guess they collect DNA as a result of a, D, of a DUI in the state of North Carolina. Thank God. Because when they entered Oliveris's DNA into a database, guess what? They got a hit for Faith Hedgepeth. And he murder. had never been a person of interest. They had never looked at him. He had never been in the sights of law enforcement. And we know very little about Oliveris. That's the thing. He's kind of, he is somebody who lived in an adjacent housing complex near where Karina Rosario, where Faith was killed, basically. Yes, he was uh, a new immigrant at that point. I think he had immigrated two years prior to the murder. Yes, he's 28 years old at the time of his arrest, but it means he was like 18, 19 when he perpetrated this murder. It's, it's crazy. Very scary. So who knows what would occur during those, you know, in those years, the nine years, you know, that lapse between the murder and him getting caught. But and I'm sure police are looking at that. Absolutely. So he's a completely random, he's a stranger to Faith. And we have to assume Faith was a very pretty girl. He probably watched her. He probably, it's a crime of opportunity. The door had been left open, unfortunately, and he murdered Faith. I mean, there's a DNA connection to this guy. But this conjecture about her murder, who was involved, it was a plot with Karina, it was so-and-so, and it must be Karina a and Eric in on it together. I, Sarah, can't tell you how many different theories I have heard. People convinced of these theories. Okay, but just to back up a little bit, okay? I think with cold cases, people get desperate to solve them. They get desperate to solve them because they want to give that particular family peace. However, what you end up doing is really ruining people's lives. This guy, Eric Jones, said he couldn't get a date, couldn't get a job. Karina's life has basically been... Oh, she lived right under suspicion for nine years. And Eric had been cleared with DNA, still lived under the shadow. And Laura, you looked into some audio tape that was related to the case. This is a recording that's on Faith Hedgepeth's phone around 1.30 the night of her murder. It's very garbled. We can play it for you, but essentially it's sort of incomprehensible. But what did you find with this audio? I actually think this is one of the most egregious examples of misinterpretation because the forensic audio analysis, and I welcome anybody to look this up, you can find the transcript of what they say that was said on this call, uh, which is all speculation. We now know that probably none of that's true because they are basically saying these were the last words of her life. And, and this was an angry women shouting in the background and all kinds of speculation was put into this phone call. And what we basically now 
most likely was this was just a call that was made in her pocket at the at bar. The club. And I think Laura and I were talking about this before the episode. I have a 14-year-old going on 15, going on 35-year-old daughter. And Laura has a 19-year-old. And the way these kids sort of talk, it's just very different from... It's open to interpretation. It's open to speculation. Because if you're using the B word back and forth to each other, which a lot of kids do, it's not a sign of aggression. It's a sign of like affection, really. And I think the note written on the fast food bag is another example of something that got very looked at. And it's my belief, and this is speculation, that that may have just been left there. That may have nothing to do with the crime. It's hard for me to believe. I spell jealous incorrectly sometimes. Yeah, but that but jealous was spelled correctly. Right. So yeah. I have a hard time believing somebody whose English is their second language. And they've only been here two years. I think he's using an interpreter now in court. Spelled jealous correctly then. So I I don't Some of that might be fronting. I don't believe he wrote that. No. I think that was just like a red herring. Something that was there that got interpreted as part of the crime scene that wasn't. It could be. The other thing in thinking about this note is that it also could have been, hey, I've noticed this pretty girl. I'm going to leave her a note that's like kind of threatening. Like she had a lot of male attention. I'm not jealous, stupid bitch. And I'm going to leave it at the door. And oh, let me try the door. And the door is open. Because the same DNA is found on the pen that is used to write the note. So he wrote that note. He could have written the note. He could have also just no, touched but, the but, pen. Well, no, Look, I, mean, I think it's up, ma- to, up to the listener. Look at the note and, and no, no, see no. What this you is think. a forensic match they, to the actual pen that wrote the note. Right, but they don't know that he wrote the note. We don't have a handwriting expert saying he wrote the note. Uh, but I think it's compelling that the same DNA they matched the pen to the note. His DNA is on the pen, so why? But I don't think his DNA is on the note. Yeah, but it's the same instrument that's used to write on the note. I don't think. I think he wrote the note. Laura doesn't. Okay, we'll leave it up to you. I I just don't think, I don't believe that somebody whose English today is this broken could have written that coherently nine years ago. You're just jealous that you can't spell jealous, okay? (laughs) Perhaps. But again, I I am speculating and I'll do so with much more caution in the future. You're absolutely right. Let's hopefully that this Oliveris has not gotten bond. He's not going to be out on bail. He's not going to be out in the streets. Thank God. And hopefully for the Hedgepeth family, they will get fairly quick justice on this case. Absolutely. And Faith's mother, I did see her at a press conference expressing joy that she had some closure. Of course. Finally. And I hope that this does bring, and I think it is bringing, attention to the issues in the Indigenous community with women. And if any good can come of this tragedy, I think then that would be it, that there would be more light shown on that issue. Absolutely. And I'll tell you something, if I was the Chapel Hill police, I'd be looking around at other rapes, other break-ins, see if Oliveris' DNA matches at any other scenes. I find it hard to believe that this is like a one-off thing. This seems like a pattern. You don't conduct yourself that violently and just that's a one-off. No, that's pretty scary that he had escalated to that level of violence at such a young age. At at 18 or 19. At 18. So I'm sure the police are going through the past nine years extremely closely and looking at where he lived and all the crimes within the vicinities. So I'm sure there'll be more to come on this case. And I think there are many lessons learned in this case for all of us. 
when speculating and, and making sure that we do know the evidence before we accuse people. And I think that my best to Karina and to all these other people whose lives were were affected by this case. And are owed an apology, frankly. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I think they are owed an apology. Because also one thing Laura and I were talking about in these kind of cases, that you have a cold case that gets a lot of a lot of attention, it's solved, and then it basically just goes away in the media. Especially when the suspect is not related to the victim, when it's not deep plot, uh, an interesting mystery. It's just kind of when it's a a stranger involved, it just kind of goes away. But it's been interesting to go outside of the Ivy League and look at another university. Absolutely. And uh, we'll be back next week. Murder. Murder.